0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family. ...where we listen to a few of the reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We've been sharing over the last few weeks now the catechism series developed by Archbishop Sheen a number of years ago. He wanted to put to vinyl uh, the teachings of the Church. And Archbishop Sheen brought tens of thousands of souls to Christ through his catechism classes... Uh, Every weekend he would hold these classes and hundreds of people would fill the auditorium and listen uh, to him as they were being instructed in the faith. And if you wanted to become Catholic under Bishop Sheen's watch, you had to receive these over 20 hours of instructions. And so we're going to share with you lesson number three today, which is entitled God in Search of Man. But before we have this catechism lesson we will continue to go into the archives of the catholic hour recordings and uh, share with you a recording back from 1946 and uh, this talk is entitled the sign of our times and uh, boy do we not uh, just uh, kind of uh, shake our head going look what's going on look what's going on it is the sign of our times and so Uh, Bishop Sheen will give us a reflection on that title. And so before we start, uh, let's pray as we always do. And uh, we love to pray to God for help. We need all the help we can get. And so we'll pray uh, to obtain a favor through the intercession of the servant of God, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, We love to call him by his title today, Venerable. We pray that he will be declared by the church blessed and of course Saint Sheen. But for now... We will continue to ask for his help under the title of Venerable. And so let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, glorify your servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. By granting the favor, we now request through his prayerful intercession. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. All right, so let us sit back and relax now and enjoy this reflection from 1946, entitled, The Sign of Our Times.
0: Friends, God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you as they will be the concluding words on each broadcast. God love you means God is love, God loves you, and you ought to love God in return. It is very difficult to do justice to this subject of communism each Sunday in the 16 minutes allotted to me in this 30-minute program. So this year I have written a much fuller treatment of each broadcast which will be sent free to you if you write in your request. Why is it that so few realize the seriousness of our present crises? Partly because men do not want to believe their own times are wicked. Partly because it involves too much self-accusation and principally because they have no standards outside of themselves to measure their times. Only those who live by faith really know what is happening in the world. And well may our Savior say to us what he said to the Sadducees and Pharisees in his time when they asked for a sign. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm... For the sky is red and lowering. You know then how to discern the face of the sky. Can you not know the signs of the times? Do we know the signs of our times? They point to two inescapable truths. The first of which is that we have come to the end of the post-Renaissance chapter of history, which made man the measure of all things. The three basic dogmas of the modern world are dissolving before our very eyes. First, we are witnessing the liquidation of the economic man, or the assumption that man, who is a highly developed animal, has no other function in life than to produce and acquire wealth and then, like the cattle in the pastures, be filled with years and die. Secondly, we are witnessing the liquidation of the idea of the natural goodness of man. There's no need of a god to give him rights or a redeemer to salvage him from guilt because progress is automatic thanks to science, education, and evolution which will one day make man a kind of god. We are witnessing also the liquidation of rationalism or the idea that the purpose of human reason is not to discover the meaning and the goal of life, namely the salvation of a soul, but to devise new technical advances to make on this earth a city of man to replace the city of God. It may very well be that the historical liberalism of our modern generations is only a transitional era in history between a civilization which once was Christian and one which will be definitely anti-Christian. And the second great truth to which the signs of the times portend is that we are definitely at the end of a non-religious era of civilization. By that I mean one which regarded religion as an addendum to life, a pious extra, a morale builder for the individual but of no social relevance, And God is a silent partner whose name was used by the firm to give respectability, but who had nothing to say about how the business should be run. And the new era into which we are entering is what might be called the religious phase of human history. Do not misunderstand me. By religious, we do not mean that men will turn to God but rather that the indifference to the absolute, which characterized the liberal phase of civilization, will be succeeded by a passion for the absolute. From now on, the struggle will not be for colonies and national rights, but for the souls of men. The battle lines are being clearly drawn. The basic issues are no longer in doubt. From now on, men will divide themselves into two religions, understood again as surrender to an absolute the conflict of the future is between an absolute who is the god man and an absolute which is the man god between the god who became man and the man who makes himself god between brothers in christ and comrades in antichrist but the antichrist will not be so called otherwise he would have no followers He will wear no red tights, nor vomit sulfur, nor carry a spear, nor wave a narrowed tail as Mephistopheles in Faust. Nowhere in sacred scripture do we find Warren for the popular myth that the devil is a buffoon who is dressed like the first red. Rather, as he described as a fallen angel, as a prince of this world, whose business it is to tell us that there is no other world His logic is simple. If there is no heaven, there is no hell. If there is no hell, there is no sin. If there is no sin, there is no judge. And if there is no judgment, then evil is good, and good is evil. But above all these descriptions, our Lord tells us that he will be so much like himself that he will deceive even the elect. And certainly no devil that we have ever seen in picture books could deceive the elect. How will he come in this new age to win followers to his religion? He will come disguised as the great humanitarian. He will talk peace, prosperity, and plenty, not as means to lead us to God, but as ends in themselves. He will write books on the new idea of God to suit the way people live. Induce faith in astrology so as to make not the will but the stars responsible for our sins. He will explain guilt away psychologically as repressed sex. Make men shrink in shame if their fellow men say they are not broad-minded and liberal. He will identify tolerance with indifference to right and wrong. He will foster more divorces under the disguise that another partner is vital. He will increase love for love and decrease love for persons. He will invoke religion to destroy religion. He will even speak of Christ and say that he was the greatest man who ever lived. His mission, he will say, will be to liberate men from the servitudes of superstition and fascism, which he will never define. But in the midst of all his seeming love for humanity, his glib talk of freedom and equality... He will have one great secret, which he will tell no one. He will not believe in God. And because his religion will be brotherhood without the fatherhood of God, he will deceive even the elect. He will set up a counter-church, which will be the ape of the church, because he, the devil, is the ape of God. It will be the mystical body of the Antichrist, that will in all externals resemble the church as the mystical body of Christ. In desperate need for God, he will induce modern man in his loneliness and frustration to hunger more and more for membership in his community that will give man enlargement of purpose without any need of personal amendment and without the admission of personal guilt. These are days in which the devil has been given a particularly long rope. Evil hour. When the shepherd may be struck and the sheep dispersed. Has the church made preparations for just such a dark night? In the decree of the Holy Father outlining the conditions on which a papal election may now be held outside of the city of Rome. Men who know history have seen these dark days coming as far back as 1842, 105 years ago. Heine, the German poet, wrote, Communism, though little discussed now, and loitering in hidden garrets on miserable straw pallets is the dark hero destined for a great, if temporary, role in the modern tragedy. Wild, gloomy times are roaring toward us, and a prophet wishing to write a new apocalypse would have to invent entirely new beasts, beasts so terrible that St. John's older animals would be like gentle doves and cupids in comparison. The gods are veiling their faces in pity on the children of men, their long-time charges. The future smells of Russian leather, blood. Godlessness and many whippings. And I should advise our grandchildren to be born with very thick skins on their backs. That in 1842. Well, indeed, may we be warned. For the first time in history, our age has witnessed the persecution of the Old Testament by the Nazis and the persecution of the New Testament by the communists. Anyone who has anything to do with God is hated today, whether his vocation was to announce his divine son Jesus Christ as the Jew or to follow him as the Christian. Because the signs of our times point to a struggle between absolutes, we may expect the future to be a time of trial. ...for two reasons. Firstly, to stop disintegration. Godlessness would go on and on and on... ...if there were no catastrophes. What death is to an individual... ...that catastrophe is to an evil civilization. The interruption of life, and for the civilization... ...the interruption of its godlessness... Why did God station an angel with the flaming sword of the garden of paradise after the fall? If it was not to prevent our first parents from entering again and eating of the tree of life, which if they ate, would have immortalized their guilt. And God will not allow unrighteousness to become eternal. He permits revolution, disintegration, and chaos to come as reminders that our thinking has been wrong. Our dreams have been unholy. Moral truth is vindicated by the ruin that follows when it has been repudiated. The chaos of our times is the strongest negative argument that could ever be advanced for Christianity. Catastrophe reveals that evil is self-defeating and that we cannot turn from God as we have without hurting ourselves. And the second reason why a crisis must come... ...is in order to prevent a false identification of the church and the world. Our Lord intended that those who were his followers... ...would be different in spirit from those who were not. But this line of demarcation has been blotted out. Instead of black and white, there's only a blur. Mediocrity and compromise characterize the lives of many Christians... They read the same novels as modern pagans educate their children in the same godless way. Listen to the same commentators who have no other standard than judging today by yesterday and tomorrow by today. Allow pagan practices to creep into family life such as divorce and remarriage. There are not wanting so-called Catholic labor leaders recommending communists for Congress or Catholic writers who accept presidencies in communist front organizations to instill totalitarian ideas into movies. There's no longer the conflict and the opposition which ought to characterize us. We are influencing the world less than the world influences us. There is no apartness. We who were sent out to establish a center of health have caught the disease and therefore have lost the power to heal. And since the gold is mixed with an alloy, the entirety must be thrust into the furnace, that the dross may be burned away. And the value of the trial will be to set us apart. Evil catastrophe must come to reject us, to despise us, to hate us, to persecute us, and then... Then we shall define our loyalties, affirm our fidelities, and state on whose side we stand. Our quantity indeed will decrease, but our quality will increase. It is not for the church that we fear, but for the world. We tremble not that God may be dethroned, but that barbarism may reign. And three practical suggestions then for the times, as Christians realize... That a moment of crises is not a time of despair, but of opportunity. We were born in crises, in defeat, the crucifixion. And once we recognize that we are under divine wrath, we become eligible for divine mercy. The very disciplines of God create hope. The thief on the right came to God by a crucifixion. And secondly, Catholics ought to stir up their faith. Hang a crucifix in their home. To remind them that they have a cross to carry. Gather your family together every night to recite the rosary. Go to daily mass. Make the holy hour daily in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord, and particularly in parishes where pastors are conscious of the world's need and therefore conduct services as a reparation. And finally, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, Americans, all of us, must realize that the world is summoning us to heroic efforts at spiritualization. It is not a unity of religion we plead, for that is impossible when purchased at the cost of the unity of truth, but a unity of religious people, wherein each marches separately according to the light of his conscience, but strikes together for the moral betterment of the world. The forces of evil are united. The forces of good are divided. We may not be able to meet in the same pew. Would to God that we did, but we can meet on our knees. And you may be very sure that no sordid compromises nor carrying of waters on both shoulders will see you through. And those who have the faith had better keep in the state of grace. And those who have neither had better begin to find out what they mean. For in the coming age, there will be only one way to stop your trembling knees, and that will be to get down on them and pray. Pray to Michael. Michael, the prince of the morning who conquered Lucifer, would make himself a god. When the world once cracked because of a sneer in heaven, he rose up and dragged down from the seven heavens the pride that would look down on the Most High. And pray, too. Pray to Our Lady. And say to her, It was to thee, it was given the power to crush the head of the serpent who lied to men that they would be like unto gods. And mayest thou, who didst find Christ when he was lost for three days, find him again, for our world that has lost him, give to the senile incontinence of our verbiage the word. And as thou didst form the word in thy womb, form him. In our own hearts, Lady of the Blue of Heaven, in these dark days, light our lamps. Give back to us the light of the world, that our light may shine even in these days of darkness. God
2: love you. You
0: are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you've enjoyed these classic audio recordings from the Catholic Hour in the 1940s, and we've been sharing them with you because they contain such important information. One of the beautiful things about Archbishop Sheen is his teachings are timeless, I know I read his books that he wrote in the 30s and the 40s, and it's like he's speaking to society today. And the same is true for many of his audio recordings. The topics that he talks about are very much the issues of the day today. And so this is where we get excited to share what we like to call a saint in the making. Uh, Bishop Sheen brought so many souls to Christ, and so we're going to share shortly Uh, with you uh, one of the uh, catechism lessons that he prepared a number of years ago. And he compiled a 50-lesson audio series that he put to vinyl. And, of course, it has been digitally remastered through uh, the technology available to us today. And I want to thank my good friend at Fultonsheen.com, where he took uh, the time to literally... Uh, listen and re-record and digitize a lot of these old crackly recordings and make them clean and crisp. And uh, so I would ask you to visit the website www.fultonsheen.com and there are hundreds of recordings of his talks and retreats and the audio portion from his television series, Life is Worth Living." Uh, Literally hundreds of hours of recordings there, all for pennies. Uh, There is the free downloadable phone app for your iPhone or Android device or tablet. Uh, So it's always nice to uh, be able to work with the new technology and carry Fulton Sheen around with you in your car and all your computers, etc. But most importantly, you'll be able to continue to enlighten your mind and strengthen your will By listening to these solid recordings. And so we're going to now share uh, the Catechism Series with you again. We're on to Lesson Three, and the title of this topic is God in Search of Man. And uh, true, it's so true that God is in search of man. He's always seeking us out, and, uh, you know, He's always waiting for our response. Uh, He loves us, we're His children. And so uh, Bishop Sheen will give us this uh, words of wisdom, I like to say. And so I encourage you now to sit back and relax and just enjoy this catechism series and this lesson entitled God in Search of Man.
3: Peace be to you. Up to this point, we were talking about conscience as an unbearable repartee and about the meaninglessness of life. saying that we should lay our heart and mind open to saving experiences that come from without and which completely change our character. So the subject, therefore, of this particular talk will be the divine invasion. But I believe the best way to start it is to tell you a story about a divine invasion. A woman wrote to me about her brother, saying that he was dying in a hospital and that he had been away from the sacraments for about 30 years. She said he led not just a bad life, he was an evil man. There's a difference between being bad and being evil. Bad man steals, bad man kills. An evil man may do none of those things, but he seeks to destroy goodness in others. Well, he was an evil man. He did much to corrupt youth and circulated all manner of evil pamphlets among the young to destroy both faith and morals. And the sister of this man which she wrote said about twenty priests have called on him and he threw them all out of the hospital room. So will you please go. Last resort, Sheen, I am. I visited him this particular night and stayed about five seconds because I knew that I would fare no better than anyone else. But instead of just making one visit I made 40 for 40 straight nights I went to see this man the second night I stayed about 10-15 seconds and I went up 5-10 seconds every night And at the end of the month, I was spending 10 or 15 minutes with him. But I never once broached the subject of his soul until the 40th night. The 40th night, I brought with me the blessed sacrament and the holy oils, and I said to him, William, you are going to die tonight. He said, I know it. He was dying of cancer, but cancer of the face. One of the most loathsome sights you ever saw. I said, I'm sure you want to make your peace with God tonight. He said, I do not get out. I said, I'm not alone. Who's with you? I said, I brought the good Lord along. Do you want him to get out too? He said nothing. So I knelt down alongside of his bed for about 15 minutes because I had the blessed sacrament with me. And I promised the good Lord that if this man would show some sign of repentance before he died, that I would build a chapel in the southern part of the United States for the poor people, a chapel costing $3,500. Not much of a chapel? No, but an awful lot of money for me. So after the prayer, I again said, William, I'm sure you want to make your peace with God before you die. He said, I do not. Get out. And he started screaming for the nurse. So in order to stop him, I ran to the door as if I were going to leave. Then I quickly came back. And I put my head down alongside of his face on the pillow and I said, just one thing, William, promise me. Before you die tonight, you will say, my Jesus, mercy. He said, I will not. Get out. I had to leave. I told the nurse that if he wanted me during the night that I would come back. About four o'clock in the morning, the nurse called. And she said, he just died. And I said, how did he die? Well, she said, about a minute after you left, he began saying, my Jesus mercy. And he never stopped saying it until he died. Now, you see, there was nothing in me that influenced him Here was the divine invasion upon someone who had the faith once and lost it. But it makes no difference whether one has the faith or not. There is this constant intrusion from the outside. It has come to many, many people, comes to Everyone though it comes so subtly that many reject it. It came to St. Augustine when he was leading a wild and furious life. And it came to him in the voice of a child and picking up scripture and reading it. Then Augustine wrote those famous lines, our hearts were made for thee, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in thee. And there was that famous playboy of the Sahara, Viscount Charles de Foucault. When in the midst of his wild life slept under the stars in the Sahara, And endured what Thompson called the abashless inquisition of each star. And there found grace and ended his life as a priest among the Muslims in the Sahara. And died a martyr there. And this practically in our times. And so I might go on to mention many, many such cases of the divine invasion. But suppose we turn from just the stories to what form this divine invasion takes. It's an infection that gets into the soul. It's a grace, but up to this point we do not know exactly the meaning of the word grace. There, I may anticipate a bit and say there are two kinds of graces, white grace which makes us pleasing to God and the other is black grace in which we feel his absence. Most people in the world today feel his absence and really feel it. Even the atheists You see, really, it is not man who is on the quest of God. It is God that's on the quest of man. He leaves us restless. The first question we have in the scripture is, Man, where art thou? No poet has ever better expressed this divine invasion than Francis Thompson in his magnificent poem, The Hound of Heaven. Thompson was at one time a student of medicine. About the only thing he learned was how to take dope. He became a bum, slept in Covent Garden, London, under the vegetable trucks, contemplated suicide. And then with this poem, found in his pocket, was befriended by a couple, the main And this poem sold 50,000 copies within a few years after his death and within 30 years was studied in the University of Tokyo in Japanese. It's because it suits the modern mood. The modern mood in the sense that men are beginning to feel this stirring of the finger of God. And he goes on to narrate the various escapes that he used. God is the hound of heaven. And first is the subconscious or the unconscious mind. He feels that if he sunk down into that, he would be less conscious of this hound who was pursuing him. And so he said, he fled God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. Down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. Upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitate a titanic gloom from those strong feet that followed, followed after. And with majestic speed, deliberate instancy, they beat and a voice above their beat low nought shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. That failing, he tries nature, science, and he has a very rare and unique way of expressing the secrets of science. He said, I drew the bolt of nature's secrecies. You can almost imagine somebody pulling a giant bolt on a door and all the secrets of science and nature pouring out. I drew the bolt of nature's secrecies, Studied the swift importings on willful face of sky. I said to Dawn, Be sudden to Eve. Be soon. Keep me o'er with thy sky blossoms from this tremendous lover. But he said, "Nature, poor stepday, cannot slake my thirst." We know not what each other speaks. Their sound is but their stir. They speak by silences. So he tries another escape from the hound, and that is illegitimate love. And herein is hidden the story of one that he calls a bud that fell from the coronal crown of spring. And he uses the example of a hearted casement in a window in the northern part of England where there was a girl that he used to know. And he says, by many a hearted casement, curtained red trellised by intertwining charities. Then he goes on to speak of how he sought love with all of these little ivy growths of affection that never quite satisfied. Then he adds his fear. For I was fearful lest having him I must have naught. Else beside. How many think that? That God is a kind of a competitor? And then if I have Him, I must reject everything else? And then He goes on to say, and when some hearted casement curtain wide, the gust of His approach would clash it too. Fear wist not to avoid as love wist to pursue. In other words, I did not know how to run away as fast as love knew how to catch me. And then he's fearful. Fearful at the end. And maybe after all, who is this one who pursues? Maybe he's going to bring some amount of detachment. And he asks... Is thy love a weed, an amaranthine weed that suffers no flower to grow except its own? And then, resorting to another example, he asks, Must thou char the wood, ere thou canst lime with it? In other words, must you put wood into a fire, burn it, purge it, sacrifice it, before it becomes charcoal, and before you can trace with it? And then another question. Must all thy fields be dung with rotten death? Is there sacrifice everywhere? And there finally comes the answer. But before giving you his answer, unless this just be the poetic exploration of Thomson, Let's find about this divine invasion in our own hearts. Just suppose you could take out your own heart and put it into your hand as a kind of crucible to distill out of your heart its inmost cravings, yearnings, and aspirations. What would you find them to be? What do you want most? First, life. Honor, ambition, power. What good are these without life? And at night we put out our hand instinctively in the dark, ready to lose that member and lose that which we treasure most, our life. Then as we continue, we find there's something else we want in life and that is truth. One of the first questions we asked coming into the world was the question, why? We tore apart our toys to find out what makes the wheels go round. And then later on, we tear apart the very wheels of the universe to find out what makes its wheels go round. We are bent on knowing causes. That is why we hate to have secrets kept from us men just as well as women. We were made to know. And there's still something else we want besides life and truth. We want love. Every child instinctively presses itself to its mother's breast in token of affection. Goes to its mother to have its play wounds bound then later on seeks a companion young likened to himself to whom he can unpack his heart with words one who measures up to that beautiful definition of a friend one in whose presence you can keep silence and so the quest for love continues from the cradle to the grave and yet though we want these things do we find them here Do we find life here in its fullness? Certainly not. Each tick of the clock brings us closer to the grave. Our hearts are but muffled drums beating a funeral march to the grave. From hour to hour we ripe and ripe. From hour to hour we rot and rot. Life is not here, nor truth in all of its fullness. As a matter of fact, the more we study, the less we know, because we see new avenues of knowledge down which we might travel for a lifetime. I wish I knew now just one ten million, as much as I thought I knew the night I was graduated from high school. So truth is not here, and love is not here either in its fullness, because when love does remain fine and noble... The day must come when the last embrace is passed from friend to friend. And the last cake is crumbled at life's great feast. So here we are, looking for life and truth and love and not finding it. Are we destined to live an absurd life? Would we ever have eyes unless there was something to see? These are fractions there ought to be a hole somewhere. And so we ask ourselves very much like asking now, what's the source of light in this room? Certainly not here under the microphone because their light is mingled with shadow. And under chairs their light is mingled with darkness. If we are to find the source of light. We must go out to something that is pure light. And if we wish to find the source of the life and the truth and the love that is in this world we must go out to a life that is not mingled with the shadow death, out to a truth that is not mingled with the shadow error out to a love that is not mingled with the shadow hate or satiety. We must go out to pure life pure truth, pure love and that is the definition of God. In other words, that's what we want. That's what we were made for. And it's he that invades the soul, as Thompson described. And after all of these evasions from the divine invasion, God speaks, and Thompson concludes his poem with, God speaking and saying,
2: Poor,
3: piteous, futile thing. Why should any set thee love apart? Seeing none but I, make much of naught, he said. And human love needs human meriting. And how hast thou merited of all man's clotted clay the dingiest clot? Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. For whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. All that thy child's mistakes, fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. God love You
0: You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family. Thank you for joining me once again to be educated in the faith, to grow in holiness together, and to know that uh, the Church does care. And I say that in the sense of the salvation that is found in the Catholic Church. And uh, Bishop Sheen knew the sacred truths of the faith and wanted to share them with us. And so, uh, again, it took time and patience, but... That was his formula. He, you just don't learn this overnight, and the, the faith is something that you have to continue to learn and learn and learn. I think of Pope Emeritus the Sixteenth, uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, I should say, uh, said many times in interviews that he's still learning the faith, uh, just even at his ripe old age, and uh, it is such a great, a great a treasure chest that we say of the roman catholic faith rich in tradition and so uh, we hope to continue to keep sharing these messages with you and we'd ask you to pray for us and to help us financially here at radio maria i just want to take a moment to thank everyone who contributed during our radiothon and uh, it is a worldwide apostolate radio maria is and uh, we were able to raise thousands of dollars to help Uh, with the setting up of other Radio Marias throughout the world. And so, uh, again, thank you for your generosity. We appreciate it very much. And so, until next week, I would ask you to uh, continue to keep the faith, uh, keep on keeping on, as many would say, and uh, let us finish our program, our hour, with uh, a prayer, a prayer for the canonization of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We pray that the Church will declare him a saint in the years to come. And so let us pray together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, source of all holiness, you raise up within the Church in every age men and women who serve with heroic love and dedication. You have blessed your Church through the life and ministry of your faithful servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. He has written and spoken well of your Divine Son, Jesus Christ and was a true instrument of the Holy Spirit in touching the hearts of countless people. If it be according to your will, for the honor and glory of the most holy trinity and for the salvation of souls, we ask you to move the church to proclaim him a saint, and we ask this prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Look forward to having you with us next week as we continue to answer that age-old question of why was I created, why do I exist, and we know the answer. We are to know God, to love him, and to serve him in this life, and to be happy with him in the life to come. So until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
0: is worth living. Hosted by Al Smith.